listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to biologist and author Adam Hart. We are such a globally successful species in terms of our numbers and spread that we really do need to reassess our relationship with how we, we sit on the planet. And I think we'll get there, but we won't get there quite as quickly as we might like. Adam shared his insights into the mismatch between our human biology and the modern world, why it's important for us to re-engage with nature, and how evolutionary science might hold the key to our future survival. This episode was recorded virtually using Skype. Your new book explores how modern life is incompatible with evolutionary processes. In fact, the evolutionary processes that gave rise to Homo sapiens. So in what way has evolution made us incompatible with modern life? In other words, how has it made us unfit for purpose? Yeah, well, I guess the first thing to say is that in some senses, we are spectacularly fit for purpose. Of course, we are a globally dominant species. We've arguably done pretty well for ourselves when you think about it, largely through the evolution of, of our social behavior and our very large brains. You know, we, we've managed to go into space. We can smash atoms apart and, and sort of comprehend the fabric of the universe. So we've done pretty well for ourselves. We're, we're a globally dominant species. But at the same time, we've created this modern world, which when you think about it, we seem to have got quite a lot of woes and problems. We're all quite fat obesity is a really big problem globally. We suffer from stress. We've created an online world that we can't really deal with. We seem to be quite violent. We have addiction-prone kind of behavior. We don't seem to have a very sensible relationship with other people in the future sometimes. So perhaps it's the case that, that what we've done is created this modern world, which the evolutionary sort of backdrop to that has created an animal that's very, very well adapted for a world that really no longer exists. You know, we, we've ruthlessly changed our environment to create this new world. And it's that world that we find ourselves struggling with. So as a quick refresher, what is this thing that's got us here, this thing called evolution? And how would you best describe that process? At its root, evolution is a change in gene frequency over time. That's really all it is. Genes can change. They can become more numerous. They can become less numerous. They can increase in frequency, decrease in frequency. Fundamentally, that's what we're talking about when we talk about evolution. But what we really mean most of the time when we're talking about evolution sort of more broadly is adaptive evolution. So we're talking about natural selection, the process by which we can end up with adaptations in plants, in animals, in fungi, in bacteria that fit that organism better to the environment they're in. And, and it's a very simple, logical, mathematical process. If if you happen to do rather well in the environment that you're in and have more offspring, and if the reason why you do rather well in that environment and have more offspring is in some ways genetic, you will pass on that ability to at least some of your offspring in some way, and they may well do better in that environment. And if you're doing better than anyone else in, in your lineage, you will increase in number as they decrease, and you will end up with the evolution of these adaptations that we see. Yeah, it's simplifying it to a certain extent, but actually that is the beauty of, of Darwin's big idea. It is in fact logically very, very beautiful. It's it's a it's a lovely mathematical certainty that, that if you're if you're doing better than anyone else and passing on the ability to do better to more offspring, you're gonna end up with more copies of that gene in subsequent generations. So that's fundamentally what we're talking about. Of course, there are other um, mechanisms. There's sexual selection, kin selection, artificial selection, and, and genetic drift. So 
random changes in, in um, gene frequency, but generally we're talking about natural selection and adaptations. And we can see that in you know the human hand, the shapes of our skulls, our, our brain. We can see it in the, the color and shape of a flower for uh, attracting pollinating insects. We, we can see it across the natural world. Well, it feels like evolution's done a pretty good job because it's got us to this point. But in the book, what you're arguing is that scientists are beginning to realise that there are issues with the current environment that we live in. And at what point do scientists begin to realise there might be this thing called a, a mismatch? Well, this kind of idea started particularly, actually, I think, with, with the idea of obesity. That seems to be one of the earliest sort of things that was, was put about as being a mismatch. And, and that was actually largely around an idea that was called the thrifty gene hypothesis, which is a bit more complex than it is often um, presented. So the idea behind the thrifty gene hypothesis is that we are famine adapted and that we have genes that enable us to pack away fat at times of plenty, if you like, to prepare for a famine. And the idea is that we're living in an, a time of feast, but our body don't know that and they're just being good metabolic boy and girl scouts and packing away resources just in case, you know, be prepared. And in this modern world of plenty, we find ourselves getting fat. And that's a very seductive idea and a very interesting idea, but actually it doesn't hold a great deal of weight around the world. Um, there are some populations where we can find thrifty genes. So South Pacific Islanders, for instance, and um, populations in New Zealand seem to have um, some genes that are supporting the thrifty gene idea, but actually we don't find that across across the world. And, and it may well be that there's a more subtle evolutionary argument. And it's called the drifty gene hypothesis in, in sort of <laughs> interplay of thrifty gene. Uh, and the idea here is that that actually about three million years or so ago, our predatory environment changed for whatever reason. It may be because some predators went extinct. We started developing more social behavior. We were able to defend ourselves better. But that predation pressure that we've been under just relaxed slightly. We were still prey animals, make no mistake about it. And in fact, we we still are in many parts of the world. But it just relaxed slightly so to allow the sort of upper weight limit to drift. That's the idea that it was no longer really a big deal that, that this genetic upper limit became a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And now we find ourselves in the modern world where we can go around a street corner. I mean, I, I say in the book that within five minutes of leaving my office for a, about one pound, I think I can buy about three days worth of calories. You know, it's not, not a great balanced diet, but vegetable oil and lard and, and you're there, right? So we, we, we don't have a problem getting hold of calories now. And, and that's the sort of mismatch. So those ideas were, were going around quite popularly for quite a while. It's quite a playful thesis at times, but we can certainly find echoes of evolutionary past, even in things like like social networks. Dunbar's number is a more well-known way of thinking about this, whereby we have a theoretical upper limit to the number of people that we can keep track of in our immediate social network. Um, it's usually taken to be about 150. There are other numbers and other estimates, but they're usually sort of at the lower end of around there. And, and that affects the way that we interact, for example, in the virtual world where we have networks that can far exceed that. And, you know, is that perhaps a mismatch? You know, these are some of the ideas that I explore in the book. Surely it was human beings that created this environment, this modern world in the first place. To some degree, could it be argued that it was our evolutionary imperative to design this sort of world, to create this sort of society? We, we like to think of ourselves as not being part of the natural world, but of course we are. Everything we, we do is, is natural, right? We have been part of the, the natural world for a very long time. And you can see that down in sort of Southern Africa, for instance, where we evolved, you know, the influence that we've had on grasslands there over millennia. Um, so yes, we, it, is, it is all part of, of what is natural. Um, and our very large brains uh, are amazing innovation. 
And that's really what we see in the modern world. We see a tremendous drive for innovation linked, of course, with our amazing social behavior. We've evolved language and emotional intelligence and all sorts of other mechanisms that allow us to work together and live together in cooperative ways that are quite remarkable. And now in the very modern world, particularly since about a third of the planet are sheltering behind closed doors at the moment because of COVID-19, you can see these things coming together quite spectacularly. You know, we live in incredibly dense, many of us live in incredibly dense urban environments, literally on top of each other, completely facilitated by technology that our innovative brains have, have produced. So we've got this lovely sort of drive towards highly social living, facilitated by technology and facilitated by the things that, that our brains have been able to come up with. And now, of course, we can also travel globally um, at the drop of a hat without really thinking about it too much. We take it as read that we can travel around the world, that innovation, that drive to see other places and things. And, and right now, that's been our downfall, hasn't it, over the last <laughs> over the last few months? We're actually protecting ourselves from COVID nineteen across the world. That the premier way to limit the spread is socially isolating. We are socially distancing. We are, if you like, going against our evolved tendencies towards sociality. We're not flying around the world anymore. We're stopping doing that sort of behaviour because we can see that it's that it's that it's caused harm. So it is an interesting balance that we're seeing at the moment. You're right. There's that imperative, that drive to produce these more ambitious and, and sort of uh, you know, glorious technological advances. But of course, at, at the moment, that's not come without problems, shall we say. I mean, do you think there's a point at which we just went too far? You can argue that COVID-19 is really a byproduct of our modern society, not just travel, but also the fact that we were allowing ourselves to be in such close proximity to animals, which is why it's been argued that this disease jumped from animal species to the human species. So do you think there's a point in modern society where things just got a little out of hand? I, I'm not sure if there's a point where they got out of hand. I, I think um, I think what we really have is a situation where we don't quite reflect enough, do we? We're, we're not we're not necessarily very good collectively at at looking at ourselves and saying, you know what, this isn't the right way to go. Possibly we are going to get better at doing that, and it does feel like we might be on the sort of cusp of of change. But I think as as a species, we haven't been particularly good at coming together and working in that collective way, and and we're we're clearly not very good. At keeping up with with our own kind of technological advances, it's really clear when you look at, at for instance, some of the research that was done on on social media, that within a very short period of time of Facebook, for example, being launched, there were there were studies about Facebook and whether it was you know harmful and and problems with with different types of personalities and things. You know, other social networks have also been studied. We know that for some people they can be extremely harmful, for instance, and yet we still don't really have very good rules of engagement. We have this weird thing with social networks where we we tend to try and engage with with online networks in the same way that we would engage with real world networks. And actually they're very different ways of, of interacting. And it's only very recently that I've sort of started to, you know, mute and block and, and be able to ignore things or move on or just mute those conversations because that's not what you do in, in the real world. You know, but in the real world you wouldn't have people behaving in that way. So I think I think we tend to be a little bit slow at working out how to come to terms with some of the developments that we made. But but we do. But Often by the time by the time we've done that, of course, we've come up with a new change and a, and a new change to our environment. So I suppose we're, in a sense, always playing catch up with our ambition and our achievements. 
you talk about in the book this idea of being unfit for purpose as if it was an issue. And I just wonder where you stand on the ways in which we can overcome this. Now, do you think that these evolutionary echoes, as you've called them, these unfortunate echoes, do you think they're biological limitations that eventually need to be overcome by humanity? Or do you think we should actually look at society as the issue and look at how we can not redesign the human, but redesign society and our technology to be more sympathetic to our biology. Yeah, I think I think that's what we we need to sort of realise a little bit. Um, we we can't blame these echoes, you know, for, for our problem because we can we can rise above these things. But if if enough of us have enough of a tendency in the background there, and it's kind of lurking around, and in in some cases it might be at the root of the problems. In some cases it might just literally be an, an echo. It might be a, a, a small sort of signal. But I think it's helpful to have some understanding of that. I was when I was um, looking at the issues of addiction, for instance, I was reading around about some of the treatments for problem gambling. And what's interesting there is that some people are using, I mean, they're calling it a sort of evolutionary inspired kind of compassionate therapy. They're talking to problem gamblers and, and couching their problems in sort of broader evolutionary terms and actually sort of explaining, look, you know, you have reward centers in your brain. This is this is what's happening in your brain when you play a slot machine. And, you know, talking to people about dopamine release and, and getting people to understand that reward center and why it evolved. You know, it was there to cause us to eat more and have sex. You know, those are the things that it was there to reward, but we can overload it. Actually talking to people about all animals are gamblers, actually. You know, if you're a mouse in a hole, you either take a risk and go out and find mates or food, or you play it safe and, and starve to death in your hole. So, you, you know, to a certain extent, you can actually you can really understand an awful lot of animal behavior, which is, you know, to some extent where I come from academically, you can understand a great deal of that through looking at the language of addiction and so on. So I found it quite interesting that that people were able to start encapsulating that in their treatment and finding that people were responding to that. You know, the, the idea that, well, evolution isn't to blame. This isn't something for you to sort of arrogate your own responsibility from, but, you know, these are the reasons why you might be going down that path. And, and, I think once you can rationalize something, sometimes you can you can find that easier. So I think I, I don't think they're necessarily limitations. I think we can and do rise above it. It, it. It's a ridiculous caricature to suggest that we're all kind of frail people stuck in our houses glued to social media. Although let's be honest, over the last few months, that's, <laughs> that's not very far from the truth. But you know, we, we can. We, yeah, of course, we're an incredibly successful species. We are thriving on planet Earth almost to the extent that we're um, in danger of, of dirtying our own nest a little bit. But yes, I think we can learn from some of those evolutionary insights. I think they do give us some sense of, well, hang on a minute, you know, there are some potential problems here and maybe we can look for solutions to overcome them. I mean, some people look at it and go, well, there seems to be some potential problems here. So in that case, why don't we just leave human biology behind? And these individuals are often called transhumanists, the sorts of individuals who go, you know what, evolution's got us this far, and the next step is going to be some form of technological evolution, whereby we become more like machines, or we upload our minds into computers, or do these sorts of very um, almost science fictional interventions, simply because we don't believe that evolution can help us overcome some of these issues within modern society that we have to look towards the technological as the way to get out. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, evolution is not going to get us out of these problems. That's for sure. That's that's that, that's that, that's the conclusion of every part it's of not, the book. Oh, yeah. no. um, yeah, if you look back to so one of the biggest changes, probably the biggest change in, in human evolution, really, was the development of agriculture. You know, twelve thousand years ago, that produced all kinds of problems actually at the time, which we overcame with technology, but also we we overcame it with evolution. And you can see that in people that are lactase persistent and are able to digest raw milk, for instance, which is only about a third of the world. That is an evolutionary. response 
response to changes in the environment, specifically dairy cattle and and, and goats and so on that, that produce milk. So we, we, we can and have, of course, evolved out of, of issues that we've created, which I suppose could give us some hope, except for the fact that it actually took you know thousands of years and, and the human world was very different back then. Now, I don't think any of us would consider a solution that might take several thousands of years to be particularly um, useful. Um, on top of that, of course, we, we have to a much larger extent managed to subvert evolution now because we have medicine that can intercede, we have technological um, solutions that can intercede to things that would normally be selection events. The other issue, of course, is that you can't have evolution without a genetic basis to something and without some variance in that. And and some of these problems we have don't necessarily have any solution that would be genetically underpinned. So we, we, we can't look to evolution to get ourselves out of it. We absolutely will be looking to technology. But some of these problems, you know, most of the problems that I talk about in the book, then they're, they're not problems that are necessarily going to be solved by technology. And in many cases, they're problems that are actually, I guess, caused by technology. You know, when we think of things like stress, the problems problems of online social networks, fake news. These are all problems that are enhanced by or caused really by the technology around us. So I think we're, as, as we move forward, we're, we are not going to be, I, I'm not sure that we're going to be evolving that much in, in the sense that most of us think of it. There may be changes in gene frequencies to do with you know, immunity to certain diseases and so on. But I think when, when people think about us evolving, you know, we, we all like to sit slumped in chairs and we spend a lot of time in cars, for instance. So are we going to evolve you know, more flexible spines or, or, or a different skeletal structure that doesn't cause us backaches and stuff, it seems unlikely because none of those things are actually stopping most people from having offspring. You know, fundamentally, when it comes down to it, evolution is about how many children you have. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't think we can look to evolution for solutions. I think we're going to be absolutely looking to um, a technological evolution over the, over the coming millennia, assuming, of course, that we're still here in the coming millennia. So, so in other words, it looks very unlikely that we'll be able to evolve hyperambidextrous thumbs to help us to text well, yeah, uh, here's the thing, right? <laughs> let, let's say there were some genetic components to that, and it seems reasonable to suggest that there might be. Certainly, some people have much more flexible joints and, and more prehensile fingers than others, and I'm sure there will be some genetic basis to it. But will it influence your your fitness from a biological perspective? In other words, will it influence how many offspring you have? That's the crucial thing. And will it do it across a, across a meaningful chunk of society, across enough time for it, to, um, for it to go to fixation, you know, so that we can look down the road in 30 generations time and see everyone with highly mobile thumbs, it seems unlikely, doesn't it? Because there's so many other things that are, are going to be more important in terms of you leaving your mark in the next generation. You mentioned stress very briefly. Stress is an interesting one because you would assume that modern society would make us less stressed. Why do you think it is that we are more stressed now rather than less? You're, you're absolutely right. We're, very few of us face any existential threats on a, a regular basis. And although we may think about you know current situations and things existentially in that sense, compared to the sorts of threats that we might have faced in our previous existences where life was less luxurious and safe, it, it does feel a little, a little different. But the issue with stress in the modern world is really not one of, of magnitude, it's one of constancy. So, our flight and fight response, our adrenaline response, is a fabulous lifesaver. You know, it certainly saved my life. I'm sure it saved my my parents' lives and so on, all the way back to to the beginning of the evolution of flight or fight, which was well outside of our of our taxon. So that type of stress, you know, that that is what we mean biologically by stress is a lifesaver. But what we find in the modern world is a constant drip drip of stress. Stress, it's much more potent and concentrated now. There is the potential to feel quite stressed about an 
awful lot of things because of the pace and the concentration, you know, that, that potency of our modern lives, which which I think is yeah, probably not just the modern phenomenon. Of course, you know, back across um you know, even relatively recent history, there would have been the opportunities to get stressed. But we have more of it now and we, we live longer. And what we know is that when you've got this constant sort of low-level micro-stresses, it can it can have medical implications. And that's really what we're just starting to learn about, you know, this notion of chronic stress. And, and the more we learn about it, the more concerning it, it seems to need to be. Um, what I found quite interesting is when you go on the sort of NHS websites and things, you, you actually find sort of advice on there that, that feels like 10 years ago, it would have been more sort of Glastonbury than Harley Street, you know, the, the idea of sort of taking spa breaks and, you know, looking out for yourself and, and sort of having some you time and things. It's, it's all quite, it's all great advice. I'm not sure how easy it is to follow if you're hyper-stressed. But the idea that we're actually starting to look at that in terms of our modern lives, I think is is really powerful. And, you know, when you look at, at sort of de-stressing breaks and so on, it almost feels as though the more Spartan those breaks are, you know, the, the more that modern life has been removed, the more expensive they are. So it's, it's, it's this sense that, that we have these layers of modern life upon us and that each one in itself, yeah, sure, you know, it's not as stressful as having to find food for your family by going out foraging or, or whatever. But it nonetheless adds this kind of constant drip, drip of micro stresses that, that over the course of a lifetime does seem to be taking its toll. Now, when evolutionary biologists talk about a lot of these ideas of evolution, they look back at the early Homo sapien with rose-tinted glasses. And I wonder if there's a desire to go back, to look at the indigenous, to look at hunter-gatherer cultures and go, you know what, what if we could design society just like it was back then when we were so perfectly evolved for our environment? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's I th- right? I think, I think there is that desire. And you, you can see it reflected in things like the paleo diet, for example, and you can see it reflected reflected in in these sorts of you know highly spartan sort of uh, retreats and so on and and people want to go and spend you know spend time in the woods what's been really interesting to me over the past few months of, of sort of the the lockdown um, era if you like is how much people are, are turning to nature in that and I don't know whether that's my sort of echo chamber on social media because I, I'm, I'm interested in the natural world and wildlife and I'm a biologist so I, I tend to follow people that, that enjoy that sort of thing but I, I'm seeing lots of kind of narratives arrive uh, arise of, of how important the natural world is, how important people have found it to be able to go out for a walk, you know, just to go out and have some alone time or go into the woods or, you know, lots of people are looking, sitting down in their garden and watching bees or watching butterflies or the verb that everyone's using is re-engaging, which I think is really interesting because I don't hear, I hear a lot of people talking about how they're re-engaging with the natural world few people talking about how they're engaging. So it's almost this sense that that we had this at one point and now we're re-engaging. And I wonder if you know, it gets a little chin-stroking, but I, I suspect that lots of people that consider themselves to be re-engaging probably weren't necessarily doing that much engagement <laughs> for a very long time. But there is this sort of atavistic sense that well, at one point we were much more engaged with the natural world and and, and we're not now. And it, I, I do find it really interesting that you know the current situation is, is making people look in, in that sort of way because I think – there is a lot to be said for it. I, I know I try and get out pretty much every day. The weather's been poor now, but when we had that lovely stretch, I was spending two or three hours most days out taking the kids out for a walk, you know, binoculars in hand, listening to the skylarks, you know, listening to the cuckoos and, and realizing that I don't normally do that because normally I'm at work and I can do it during the day because because of the, the, the change in our work-life balance now and the way that we work. And I, I have found that very, very valuable. And I do think there is that there is that sense of being with the natural world, making you feel a lot more um, a whole, I guess. 
I, I'd be interesting to see how we come out at the end of this and see whether people take those lessons. But, but yes, I do think there is a, a desire to do that. I wouldn't want to go back and live 12,000 years ago at the beginning of agriculture. Um, our diet was extremely limited then. And actually, there was a lot of malnutrition around because we'd gone from foraging, which was a very healthy way of living, to growing our own limited crops. We'd gone from living reasonably spread out to suddenly living in more dense settlements. So we're having problems there. We couldn't digest various things. So, so actually, at that stage, it wouldn't have been that great. So you think, well, I'll go back further. I'll go back 20,000 years. And you think, well, yes, but you had to go and find food all the time. And you know, the ice age was coming and so on. It, it, it feels like it would have been, I think I'd rather be living now, but with aspects of that relationship with the natural world and the environment that perhaps we had more of then. But I don't want those aspects to be you know, dangerous or, <laughs> or hazardous, right? I don't want it to be that real. I mean, it's a, it's a form of uh, evolutionary golden age thinking in an odd sort of way. It, you know, it was always better. It, it was always better in the past. And I wonder if that's just part of the fiction of the idea of the perfect human, the idealized human. That on one end of the spectrum, we put this this future human on a pedestal, this idea that eventually we're going to technologically enable ourselves to be perfect. But then there's also the, the counter argument that, oh, no, 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 no. Back in the past, at, at one uh, amazing point, we were perfectly in sympathy with our natural environment and in actual fact where we are now is a thing that we should be we should be focusing yes. on yes yeah, yeah. We, we, we look to, obviously, we don't know about the future. So we, we make predictions which generally seem to go one way or the other, right? They're, they're, they're usually one, one extreme or the other. It's all either going to go to hell in a handcart and we, we bought it on ourselves and we deserve it, or it's going to be this utopian sort of future with kind of everything in, in a very sort of sci fi sort of way. And when we look back in the past, of course, you know, we, we see that, that, you know, one of the chapters I talk about the paleo diet, and it's a really interesting approach to, towards nutrition. This idea that we can solve our problems of, of sort of yeah, basically eating too much by reverting to a diet that people had 20,000 years ago. But when you look at what those diets are, first of all, we don't have a great notion of what a diet plan might have looked like 20,000 years ago. But, but also you sort of you sort of read through and you think, okay, well, you've allowed yourself a few things which wouldn't have been around 20,000 years ago, but I'll accept that. But you know, where are you getting calcium from? And, and you realize that a lot of these diets are quite depauperate in certain things, but but you can make up for them with, you know, some unusual flax seeds or some other thing. And you start reading this through and you think this is this is not a solution to anything. This is a, this is this is a nonsense. <laughs> yeah, if you want to live a Stone Age diet, then go out in the woods and forage for yourself and you'll find that it's pretty difficult without the technological know-how to actually get where you're going and 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 to do well. And you you can't just throw yourself back in and live like that. There was um there was a TV series not that long ago, a few, I think it was a fair few years ago, but but they had people living a sort of Stone Age existence, if you like, or a, a pre-agricultural existence in a wood somewhere with a survival expert helping them. And and I think after a few weeks, they actually had to um, to bring them food parcels and things because <laughs> because they they struggled so much. They they weren't adapted for that intellectually, you know. They they didn't know how to how to live like that. We can't look to the past, and um, we can't look to the future. We we have to live in the here and now. But I think having some understanding of how we got here, perhaps some of the problems and limitations of that does does feel like it could be useful. I mean, part of the reason they didn't survive is because they were pulled out of this yeah. <laughs> current environment and then placed into this um, quote-unquote natural environment and, and became a victim of those circumstances. Mm. But if they were native, if they were born and indigenous to that environment, surely there'd be generational knowledge that would be passed yeah. down on how to deal with the land, where to forage for certain food, how to hunt. In a funny sort of way, it's, it's not so much that uh, we can't 
can't ever return there. The issue is that we won't have the knowledge on how to authentically return there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and the thing is, it would be wonderful to live like that until you broke your leg or until you got sick or until you discovered a lump and had to go and, and, and sort of have chemotherapy or something. You know, the reality is that, that the modern world is an amazing place and we've made it an amazing place. That the achievements and things that we've done are mind boggling, really, when you when when you sit and think about them. And just the advances in medical science and technology alone over the last fifty years are are staggering the things that we can contemplate curing. I mean, at the moment, people are talking about you know vaccine for for this virus, which was only only sort of identified in December, potentially being available by the end of the year or you know in eighteen months. And when you think about what's actually involved with that, it's it's staggering. And we 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 actually take this stuff for granted. We've very easily got to the stage where we have an expectation that if there's something wrong with us it can get fixed. And I think that's one of the things that's possibly sat us down a little bit about about COVID-19. It's like, oh, well, you know, I thought we were on top of this kind of stuff. And suddenly this virus is, is laying the world low. You know, it exposes the fact that we are fundamentally animals. <laughs> and, and like any other animal, we're vulnerable to to a new a new disease. And and that's really been been highlighted by that. So I think this idea that we can we can live in the past or we would be happier then, I think we might be happier for a few weeks and we'd certainly be less stressed and it might give us some good insight. But but overall I think I'd I'd rather have a, a nice dry, warm house and access to medical technology and, and be able to go and buy food and talk to my family that live live a distance away very easily and all that sort of thing. You know, I personally like the modern world. But I think there are aspects of it that just need tweaking or thinking through a little bit in order to sit better with with how I function as an animal. I guess that's fundamentally at the heart of, of what the book is about. Early human, as, as you described so well in the book, had this uh, relationship with the natural world. They understood the cycles of nature. It's the reason why there wasn't the sorts of climate crisis that we have today. It's the reason why they didn't have issues with sleep, because there was a circadian rhythm that was appreciated. Yeah. What do you think has been lost in the name of progress, and how do we get back there, I guess? We have so ruthlessly produced this modern world where we are yeah, assiduously removing all traces of nature. People People look outright. I get lots of photos of, you know, house spiders, for example, or um, you know, a fly that's sort of had the temerity to bite them, and 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 there's a sense, there's a sense of outrage, right? That that nature is in my house, and you know, I'll have people asking me, what, what I've got, I've got a wasp nest in my garden. Um, what can I do to get rid of it? And it's like, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> you know. And, and you're right. Our, our current response to nature is that it is something to be conquered. And I think that is something we're starting to realise, and I guess we need a collective understanding a collective awakening to the idea that that nature is is not something to be conquered nature is actually something that we need to live as a part of not that we need to live alongside of in other words you know we live here and nature's over there actually we are part of that natural world and the natural world can be part of our world you know you look at some of the planting schemes and some of the ideas that are coming up with modern urban design to to build in sort of natural corridors and to have sort of woodlands in in towns and things we we still really build or live in in settlements that, that have been around sort of from the you know in, in britain i suppose for a very long time but but were built around this idea of isolating ourselves from the countryside or whatever actually you know maybe we need to be looking real root and branch about how we how we actually place ourselves in the world around us and and not just thinking about it as the natural world but the world in general we will get there um you know we're very good at solving problems in the long run it's just it feels like it takes too long because 
I guess probably because evolution has uh, come up with our mental heuristics that, that value right now over the future. You know, we want things to happen now, now, now. And I guess with some of these things, we're looking at, at slow change. But we do need to change quite clearly. We, we've reached a sort of point where it almost feels like us uh, as a species now, we've kind of reached a point where we're sort of older teenagers that are kind of looking around at the mess we've made and thinking, mm, you know what, actually, it might be quite nice to live in a clean, tidy house. You know, actually, it might be quite nice to do the dishes every so often. And I I think I think that's the sort of point that we're 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 getting to, you know, where we have to realise that we are such a globally successful species in terms of our numbers and spread that we really do need to reassess our relationship with how we we sit on the planet. And I think we'll get there, but we won't get there quite as quickly as we might like. Perhaps we're not the ones to design our way out of this problem. There's been a lot of talk about rewilding, whereas if we just gave uh, nature 50% of the planet back, nature would just deal with the rest. It would go, you know what, humans, we've got it from here. Thank you for that 50% of rewilding. Now we'll create the ideal circumstances under which we will survive this climate crisis. Human beings have have such a human hubris to believe that they can also be the solution to the problems that they created in the first place. Yes, and we are. We're very good at what, what you know, what I might call a bush fix, right? You get, have, a, have a sort of roll of tape and a ball of string and you can fix most things, especially if you throw cable ties into the mix, but it, but it's only, it's not really fixing it. And and you're right, we, we have a tendency to, to think that we make, we, we're making progress here because we've got um, a sedum roof on some school building somewhere. And, and, and really what we need to be doing is a much more root and branch examination of, of how we're living on the planet. Now, whether... Yeah, it's quite a controversial idea to think about about that. And I think almost in a position of privilege, actually, sometimes to think about the idea that we, we sort of turn the world over. Actually, humans live in a huge areas of the world and, and experience all kinds of issues with often the developed world's relationship affecting people that don't really, you know, haven't really caused the problem. I think a bigger problem is actually something that I touched on in the last chapter of the book, which is the fact that we're not very good at thinking about the future in a very mature way anyway. When, when you think about it, evolution doesn't care about the future. Evolution's a here and now. You know, evolution's a bush fix, right? <laughs> Let's get it done. And if it works well enough, then it works well enough. The most famous example of that being our own eye, which is essentially wired the wrong way around. But it works, and that's what evolution works on, right? It's a solution, bingo. Doesn't care if it's the best solution or not. You leave more offspring, boom. You know, it works. And I think... I think what we've ended up with is probably some sort of mental heuristic that that means that we're we're valuing now the here and now over the future and there's some really elegant experiments that people have done to show that actually we devalue even future versions of us you know even future us will let future us take the hit whilst we value present day us and when you mix in other people as well you end up with this sort of hierarchy of you know me here and now versus future versions of me versus other people. And and what we need to do to fix the problems of the world is to, first of all, value everyone and realize that we are literally all in the same boat. You know, globalization should be a, a, a way of doing that rather than just getting cheap goods from abroad and, and making sure that other environments get destroyed rather than ours. You know, that's, that's not what that should be about. It should be about bringing people together. But then also, you've got to have a much more mature viewpoint of the future. You have to understand that we're going to have to take some fairly bad medicine in some cases. You know, we're going to have to change the way that we live. And some of the luxuries that we've taken for granted, perhaps consume less, fly less, you know, do things differently so that future generations can benefit. Well, that that's really not fundamentally how we, we go about doing things. We can, you know, we, we certainly can do that. 
and and we should and we we're going to have to but we're going to need i think to frame those things in ways that that just kind of sidestep the fact that our natural tendency is to go for the here and now of the future we just need to sort of judo that a little bit and perhaps use that to our advantage in some way but some clever stuff i guess it, it relates to ideas like nudge theory and things like that how you can just push people into doing the right thing and that's that feels to me to be a particularly prominent and pertinent problem is just making people stop and care enough about what's happening to really take that forward and yeah it's happening it does it does feel like we're we're on the cusp at the moment it feels like what's stopping us is as human beings our issue with how we deal with a very very large or the very, very long term. So it's either a time issue or a scale issue. So it's very hard for us to think about managing our habitat on a global scale because, as you say in the book, we've, we've been used to living in social groups of around 150. And equally, it's very, very hard for us to think the long term far out into the future when we've got so many issues that we're dealing with currently in society today. So how do you think we, we have a better relationship with our, our future selves and enable ourselves to think on a on a global scale. Yeah, you're right. We're um you know, we are here and now immediate species with, with you know, l- l- looking at the horizon rather than looking around the planet. You know, that's it's very true. How we overcome that, I don't know. We have to first of all have a much well, we have to have a better political system, don't we? We have to have a political system that that is longer term than what we have. And, you know, many of the problems that emerge locally, you know, regionally, globally, nationally, uh, emerge because we end up with political systems that are, are, are reimagined every four years, and and people spend half their time trying to get back into office, and the other half of their time, you know, trying to uh, trying to win their win their seat. It doesn't feel like a very good system, and and it seems to be a system that we find you know many places across the world. So I guess there's that. Capitalism overall isn't necessarily a terrible thing, but it doesn't seem to be working for a lot of people. Um, and certainly at the moment, you know, I saw someone tweeted a while ago. It was a brilliant tweet. It was like, capitalism is a great system. It just needs bailing out massively every 10 years or so. You know, when we saw that you know, in 2008. Suddenly, everybody, you know, oh, well, it works, but it just hasn't worked now. So we need to throw money and print money. You know, And now we're in this situation uh, here. And it's like, well, after about two weeks of, of sort of COVID nineteen isolation, and businesses were going under, it was all it was all terrible. That doesn't feel like a very robust system for us to be basing our lives around. So we we've got this this kind of this this political systems and these economic systems that actually encourage short termism and actually encourage us to think. I think it's fair to say encourage us to think generally quite selfishly, or certainly that's the way that that, that they end up. Um, they're not necessarily inherently like that, but they seem to end up that way. But also they are inherently short-termist and, and value and, and really play to our evolutionary foibles, actually, because they, 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 they lead us to value the short-term over the long-term and, and the, the idea of you know future generations. Well they'll, I, I, well, they'll fix that problem, right? You know, someone in the future will fix this problem, so I'll just carry on, you know, tanning it until it's until it's dead. You know, that that doesn't feel <laughs> doesn't feel like a good system. So I think I think if we want to really get on top of these things, we are going to have to think much more maturely about that, both locally and also globally. You know, we need to get away from this fragmented way. We we need to embrace globalization. We need to understand that we are all in this together. And I think lots of organizations and lots of individuals do, but overall there is not that sense that we do. And 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 possibly the current situation is is leading to a little bit more fragmentation in some ways. But hopefully when we come through at the other side, we we might find more unity and and more collective behavior because we are going to have to 
behave that way. We can't we can't fix the world sadly by fixing our own back gardens. We we need to we need to step back and have a different way of doing it. So you don't believe that we can think locally but act globally? I think we can and I think there's certain value to be had in that. But I think the really big issues that we're facing at the moment are going to have to be dealt with globally. You know, they're going to have to be to, to be sorted at a big level because no matter what, for example, I do as an individual, it's not necessarily going to stop, you know, large corporations strip mining bits of the outback or whatever. You know, we, we need to have more overview, I think, internationally. I mean, I think we, that shouldn't stop us from acting locally. We, should, we shouldn't give up doing what we do on, a, on, a, on our local scale. And of course, our local environment is very important for us as well. But I think, you know, we need that big world thinking, I think, and those big viewpoints to, to really get us out of this. I mean, maybe you you hit on it there with the word capitalism. I mean, capitalism is this operating system that defines how we run society. It has this growth imperative, which demands that we continue to progress. In actual fact, what we need to realize is if we are to go back to indigenous thinking, then maybe it's not about linear progression, but it's about thinking about things cyclically, whether it's circular economies or a circular relationship with nature, whereby we don't extract from the ground, but we actually work with uh, soil to ensure that we are allowing for new nutrients to be replenished into the soil as we then use that soil to grow our crops. It feels like we've got to the point where we're like, oh, we've we've asset stripped the planet. So what we'll do is we'll we'll artificially place more assets back into the planet, and and you get Monsanto style agriculture whereby they're just pumping chemicals into the ground to replace the chemicals they took out of the ground that would naturally replenish themselves anyway if there was a better understanding of how these systems work cyclically. It's it's not a it's not a linear progression, it's a cyclical yeah. relationship. Yes, surely. And, and and this kind of myth of infinite growth almost, isn't it? Is if, if things are always supposed to grow, you kinda of have to say, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> um, where we you know, where where's that gonna go? Clearly clearly that can't that can't operate forever. But I, I think you, also, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you, when you used the word value. I think we need to change how we value our lives. And at the moment, that value is, is, is economic. And in some cases, that can be a useful measure, of course. Um, it's a useful measure of all kinds of things. But it's not a useful, useful measure if that becomes the goal. You know, we, we really need, we need to look at, at quality of life. And we need, to, we need to have a much more mature understanding about what makes us happy and about what makes us worthwhile and about what makes us you know want to carry on living and and if what makes you want to carry on living is the is the endless need to to accumulate more wealth well okay you know i guess there are always going to be some people in society that want that but but i don't think that's the case for most people actually you know we we, we know that you get to a certain level of wealth you actually don't get any happier all that happens is you make the world a worse place for other people because your pursuit of wealth is is usually at the expense of someone else so you know i think i think we do need a, a reappraisal of how we value our lives and how we assess that value. And, and I think once we start doing that, then we, we might be making some progress. And it's, re- it's really nice and refreshing to see some countries including these types of measures and looking at, at quality of life and well-being as being the important things rather than, you know, gross domestic products and so on. But of course, you know, having some level of wealth in inverted commas is, is, is important. You know, we want to live comfortable, nice lives, but we can't continue to do that. And you're right, we can't just continue to asset mine the planet. 
planet in order to be able to chase ever more grandiose ideas of what we think wealth and luxury and comfort and, and quality of life is. You know, we don't all need a private jet, right? It would be it would be very nice sometimes, wouldn't it, to be able to hop on it and go somewhere? But but we don't. We really don't need that. And actually, I bet if you had one, it would just give you something else to stress and worry about. We do need to reassess how we how we value ourselves. Actually, you know how how we how we value our experiences and our life experiences, what is important to us and how that can translate into, into the way that we live. And I, I suspect that once we start doing that in a more global fashion, we might make a few changes. I, I don't know. That's, that's my feeling. I mean, you hit on it earlier when you were talking about going for a walk with your family. I mean, what makes us happy? Well, sometimes it's as simple as going for a walk in nature, but we might reach a point whereby we want to go for a walk to make us happy and then realize nature's all gone. So, uh, <laughs> whoops. <Yeah. laughs> I wonder if it is that simple because intuitively, maybe it has no scientific basis, but intuitively we know there is something good about being under the sun, near water, in nature. If we, if we have this intuitive notion that, okay, there's something good about this nature thing. So <laughs> how do we, how do we, instead of commoditizing it, where if you want to go to nature, you can jump on a plane and <laughs> yeah. go find nature. It's like, whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa. It's like, that doesn't help. Exactly. Like, yeah. there's, a, there's a forest around the corner. Just go walk there. Well, I think something that I find quite interesting is, is the fact that I grew up in South Devon. I grew up kind of in a, a fairly rural place and, and nature was around and I used to love going rock pooling and all that kind of stuff. And I, I love being out in the natural world and, and, and being, and I'm very comfortable and, you know, I'm quite happy to, 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 I, I thrive in that environment and, you know, I, I enjoy it. But I realize a lot of people don't. Um, a lot of people don't like being outside. A lot of people don't enjoy being in nature. A lot of people have no connection with it at all. Birdsong doesn't isn't something that registers. They don't see these things. Um, you know, I've, I've been out for for walks with with people in towns, and you know, a sparrowhawk flies over. I mean, there's a peregrine falcon that nests in um in uh, in Cheltenham a while ago, and you can walk around with people. They don't see it. So I think one of the one of the issues that we have is that a lot of people that talk about nature and that have these sort of conversations that we're having are the people that are are engaged with nature or re-engaged, I suppose, to echo back to what we were saying earlier, right? That people are tuned to it. They understand the value of it. My realization is that an awful lot of people aren't actually. And, and that's something that sort of I, you know, I struggled to come to terms with a little bit because, because it was like, well, hang on a minute. How can you not, how can you not feel the same as I do about, about these natural spaces? And I think a lot of it's down to how you've grown up, what you've been exposed to in your, you know, in your environment and not necessarily having the opportunity to have that engagement with nature and i think that is something that's really really important we need to we need to make sure that people have the opportunity to develop that relationship and to understand that it's something important because until we we understand it's something important we're not necessarily going to want to preserve it particularly and, and you're absolutely right maybe even people that aren't that engaged with nature on their doorstep or don't sit out in the garden and think oh that's a you know a, a cinnabar moth that's a nice thing to see or oh is that a you know is that a great tit calling they're not going to think that way but but they might want to get on a plane and go on a safari for example they might want to go to costa rica but but they'll see that as a once in a lifetime experience to sort of engage with the natural world and they're missing that natural world engagement around them all the time that could bring them an enormous amount of happiness and well-being on a on a day to day basis, so I think I think we've still got a lot to, a lot of work to do there to 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 get people to understand that actually you know the natural world is all around them if if they stop 
stop to look, even even in cities and built up areas. Lots of cities, and particularly in the UK, you know, lots of towns and cities have natural spaces and, and places for, for nature. And I think just getting people more engaged with that, working with children particularly, but but just also, you know, adults can be can be can be educated too, right? You know, adults can suddenly have a an epiphany that, well, hang on a minute, this is really quite cool. And I think we we probably need to do more of that. A lot of it's done already. You know, lots of people do lots of really interesting outreach work on all this stuff. But I think maybe we we need to perhaps do more. It might be the fact that evolution will just kill off all the people who don't like nature. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean that, I mean that facetiously. But thinking about it, you have cases whereby children are brought up now without any relationship with the outside. They're brought up in a bubble and they're kept inside in environments that are cleaned with products that purport to kill 99.9% of germs and those same children never develop immune systems. There's a good argument to be had that the best thing you can do is to put a child out into nature to roll them around in mud so they actually build an immune system to survive <laughs> into the uh, into the future and not have to rely on artificial systems such as uh, medical products to, to build their immunity. Yes, um, that whole link with our immune system is really interesting actually. Um, it's, it's sort of become known as the hygiene hypothesis, but but it's it's actually more complex than that. It's it's more like relationships that we build up with our old friends. The old friends hypothesis is how it's become known that 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 we have these deep rooted evolutionary links and and, and associations, co evolutionary associations with um, certain microorganisms that our immune system has to learn to identify as friend from foe. And and you're right, and it's probably it's probably not you know we're, we're probably not keeping our houses any cleaner these days. It's it's more down to the fact that as you said, we have less engagement at a young age with the natural world. We have less engagement with animals. Now we tend to have smaller families. So interestingly, when when the hygiene hypothesis was first was first sort of put about, it, it wasn't anything to do with home hygiene. It, but particularly, it was actually linking um, family size and the number of, of siblings with um, the development of diseases like asthma, and showing that that larger families, particularly if you're a younger sibling, you've, you've got a you've got a more robust immune system. Essentially, you're less likely to have an inflammatory disease. And you know those sorts of linkages and connections. It's it we change the way that we're living. We've changed from having sort of, you know, creches of children all mixing together and, and being very much at one with, the, you know, being part of the natural world, if you're right. If you like, you're right. We now, we now live inside much more. We have smaller families. We have less association with lots of different people. We, we at a younger age, don't have that type of natural experience. And it is, it is having knock-on effects in, in, in terms of our lives. So, yeah, you could argue that's another, another good reason why an engagement with the natural world from an early age is, is good for us. It's not just our mental well-being. It does help us to develop a more robust immune system. I mean, after researching this book and after looking at all of the variety of mismatches that human beings have, uh, do you feel hopeful? Do you think we're actually going to survive as a human species? Do you think maybe our cognitive abilities will ensure our survival? Or do you think we're we're just doomed. No, I think I think I think we'll we'll do all right. I, I think a lot of the problems that we're in at the moment, our our brains have got us into it, right? You know, we 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 have issues interacting with technology that we invented. We've created a world that that we're getting to the stage where we've really you know, wiped our feet on it a few too many times, and we need to we need to think carefully about that. That's all down to our brain power. The most complex structure in the universe is in, is is inside our heads, and it's allowed us to do some incredible things. But those incredible things have also got us into trouble, and it'll be our brain 
brains that get us out of there and and we can thank evolution for that you know we can thank evolution for our brain and and it will be our brain power that gets us out of the the various holes we've dug whether it's sort of medical holes whether it's potentially existential kind of holes to do with with how we're we're, we're viewing and interacting with the earth we we will we will get out of it i think i'm, I'm quite I'm, I'm quite hopeful about that but we can't we can't sit back and, and pretend that everything's rosy because you know clearly there are a few a few things that we need to sort out and on that optimistic and hopeful note adam hart <laughs> thank you for your time thank you thank you to adam for sharing his insights into how we can learn from our evolutionary past to better prepare us for the future You can find out more by purchasing his book, Unfit for Purpose, When Human Evolution Collides with the Modern World, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.